Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is Travis Christopherson, author of Tripping Over the Truth, The Metabolic Theory of Cancer. So, Travis, thanks for coming. I'm really glad you're here. Yeah, nice to be here. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, tell me, um, I found that people work in fields like this, unfortunately, usually because they've had some kind of personal experience with what they write about. I hope that's not the case, but what's your background? What got you into looking at uh, you know, cancer and metabolic therapy? You know, for me, for me, it was just a genuine curiosity of the, the subject and, and a, just a true fascination with uh, that there could be an alternative explanation for what the basic fundamental biology of cancer was. So it was kind of a collision of, of a, um, a school a graduate research project and um, uh, running into Tom Seyfried's book, Cancer is a Metabolic Disease, for that project is really what kicked it off for me. I, I you know, my, my undergrad was in um, uh, pre-med. And so everything that, you know, I had learned prior to that was, was what was in textbooks, which was cancer is a genetic disease caused by key mutations to oncogenes. And, and then Tom's book, which is essentially a textbook, you know, laid out this vast universe of data going back to the 20s even before that, really, um, of all this compiled evidence that showed cancer could be perhaps a, a metabolic disease. And this converged right at the time, 2012, with the Cancer Genome Atlas Project, where the technology had caught up and could really answer questions about what the genome of the cancer cell looked like. And the wake of that project created this this sort of state of confusion that you know most people don't hear about because it's embedded deep in these biology journals, but people were trying to make sense of what the data was, what what the cancer genome, you know, what the mutations meant, and so it was perfect right. timing because that data was just coming out right while I dove into Tom's book, and that led to my book, which is kind of an examination of of both sides of the coin. So, yeah. what, in your estimation, your experience, what I know it's a huge question, but what causes cancer? You know the the genetic theory, I guess, is, you know, cells undergo mutations, you know, either random or perhaps in response to stress, and, you know, they become cancer cells. But what have you seen is actually what happens? You know, every day I learn something new about this that kind of, you just sort of, you know, add it to this kind of repository of knowledge, and you get this kind of image of what you think cancer is. But yeah, you're right. We used to think that it was just that clear cut, that we would find if we could sequence a genome, and I say we, I just mean, you know, the scientist community in general, if if they could sequence the entire genome of cancer cells, they'd find this defining fingerprint of maybe, you know, oh, four to 10 mutations in oncogenes that was the cause of that type of cancer. And now we know it's not remotely that simple. There are, there are cancers with zero mutations that we find. There are cancers with one or two driving mutations. So it's a, it's just, it's a more complex picture than we thought. And what, you know, what is the ultimate cause? In my mind, you know, if you ask Tom Seyfried, he'll tell you it's mitochondrial damage, period. That's what kicks right. it off. But in my mind, you know, that, that certainly could be a trigger. But what happens after that? appears to be an epigenetic response. And and when you look at, when I say epigenetic, I just mean 
of the 22,000 gene, genes we have in our genome, the epi, epigenetics is the turning up and down of the, the volume control dials of each one of those genes. And so when you look at cancer cells, the pattern that's revealed is they, they are re-expressing this sort of cassette of embryonic genes. And so cancer looks like this sort of out-of-context rebooting of the, pro, the program of embryogenesis. Um, and so, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a program that's in every one of our cells, and it just sort of gets rebooted in this kind of out-of-context format. And, and, you know, interestingly, we, we find things every day, like I just read this the other day, for example. You can take, you can take rats, which are social animals, yeah. and you can isolate them from birth and put them into, cage, into cages where they're isolated, and then you have a control group that's, you know, living in a group. And the ones that are isolated have up to 80 times, will develop up to 80 times more mammary tumors. So, so you know, what's what's the answer that you get out of that is that our lifestyle, you know, these factors, loneliness, even um, toxins we're exposed to, all these things sort of get distilled into this, uh, you know, really complex qu- equation about whether do we develop cancer or not. So that's a long answer. <laughs> so cancer, so cancer is, a, is a epigenetics. I don't know if I'm saying this right, but epigenetics is how cells express the genes that compose them. Right. So exactly. uh, an epi, epigenetic change means that I guess certain genes stop being expressed and other ones are expressed more or at all. Exactly. Is that precisely? Is that right? Okay. Yeah. So, so like for example, a neuron would never express uh, a stomach acid gene. Right, it gets shut off in the neuron. It gets turned on in the in the the lining of the, the cells that line the stomach. Um, and, and cancer, a good example is is you you're born with four versions of this gene called hexokinase. And hexokinase, yeah. it, those are called isozymes. There's four versions in your genome. Um, hexokinase catalyzes the first uh, reaction in glycolysis, the first reaction of glucose as it goes down the glycolytic chain towards um, lactic acid or pyruvate, depending. Um, but it's the first step in that process. There's nine sort of chemical steps in that process. And yeah. when when you're an embryo, you express the version called hexokinase 2. Then when you grow up as an adult, you'll switch to expressing pri- primarily, primarily hexokinase 1. Um, but the cancer cell will revert back to hexokinase 2. And hexokinase 2 is essentially the enzyme that's responsible for what we call the Warburg effect. It, it's not sub, it doesn't have a break on it. The enzyme is not subject to what we call product inhibition. It just rips through the glycolytic pathway and shoves glucose down it. So it's a single conversion, you know, from one enzyme to another that's within our genome that's responsible for this hallmark feature of cancer. So that's that's one of the, one example. What do you mean when you say it, it changes uh, how glucose is processed? Well, okay, so well, a cancer cell, um, if you talk to Tom Seyfried, I'm sure you heard a lot about this. Cancer cells, one of the hallmark features is they exhibit what we call the Warburg effect. And and you can, you know, debate why they're doing this, but but the Warburg effect essentially is that cancer will primarily use glucose as a fuel and it, it runs through glycolysis and that creates energy and then it kicks out lactic acid, which is a waste product. And that the question is why why would cancer cells be doing that? They do this in the presence of oxygen. You know, most healthy cells in the presence of oxygen will use what we call aerobic metabolism. So they'll go through glycolysis and then the glucose will enter uh, the mitochondria and make energy with oxygen. But cancer cells sort of bypass that second step and just kick out lactic acid. And, you know, the question is, why are they doing that? And that's been debated, still being debated today. So, yeah, um, 
Thomas Seyfried said that the cancer cells use glucose, but they also use glutamine. I don't know if uh, if you found that to be true or not, or if it's primarily just glucose as their fuel source. No, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. There's two fuels they pr- prefer to use, glucose and glutamine, and, and they're somewhere on the spectrum. Some cancers like glucose more than glutamine and, and vice versa. Some cancer cells like, you know, the inverse, glutamine more than glucose. But yeah, those are the two primary fuels. Okay. So um, in response to stresses, I guess, diet, uh, environment, toxins, you know, loneliness, et cetera, People's bodies, uh, I guess, what is the mechanism that causes them to have cancer cells or to create cancer cells? Well, so, you know, that, that if we could answer that, we'd know the prime, the prime origin. And, and <clears throat> I just think it's, it's a series of extraordinarily complex events. But whatever kicks it off, we, you know, we know that those are variables. We know, obviously, cigarette smoke is a huge variable. Um, so, so it's these damaging events. Something like lo- loneliness, you know, for example. Well, you can measure the effect in people. They'll they produce more cortisol, which is a which is an epigenetic acting sort of like hormone. It goes in, attaches the DNA, and changes the way genes are expressed. And so, over really? time, when w- yeah, over time, as you produce m- too much cortisol, it changes the way your your immune system responds. It has more of an inflammatory response. You know, less targeted. Um, so that may may allow an environment where cancer cells can, you know, sort of escape the immune system. But, you know, to pin it down to a certain series of events, I think is almost impossible. It's just, it's just this myriad of complexity. And then, all right, so what about the, um, the therapy side? You said already, you gave some hints, you know, that cancer cells uh, use glucose differently from regular cells. They also use glutamine. So what have you realized through your research? um, What kind of therapies could target cancers? you know, beyond normal radiation and chemotherapy, et cetera, yeah. or instead of perhaps. Yeah, I get, you know, the low-hanging fruit to that, sort of this cancer therapy, it, um, what we've noticed metabolically is is it seems like metabolic therapies are very good adjuvants, meaning they kind of set the cancer cell up to die easier. So if you come in with something like radiation or, or a cytotoxic chemotherapy, they die quicker and they die a more orderly, less inflammatory death. Um and and they do this beautifully. They sort of differentiate between normal cells and 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 cancer cells. Like for example, the ketogenic diet, uh, the ketogenic diet will restrict glucose. And when you're when you do that to healthy cells, they'll start your liver will start producing ketone bodies, and healthy cells will stop burning ketone bodies. And when they do that, they they upregulate uh, what we call glutathione. So it's this intercellular antioxidant. And Conversely, cancer cells, you know, obviously they love glucose and they can't respond to as well to ketones, so they have less glutathione. So you've set up this sort of therapeutical differential between a healthy cell and a normal cell, where the healthy cells are, have more energy and they have more intercellular antioxidants and the cancer cells have less energy and less antioxidants. And so then when you come in with something like radiation, for example, and this is very measurable, we come in with the chemotherapy or radiation, the healthy, healthy cells are protected and there's fewer side effects. So if somebody comes into chemotherapy in a fasted state, you can measure um, you know, the number of mouse sores, the number of times that they vomit or, or things like that, and they're, they're incredibly reduced. The number of times vomited, this was a study done on I think 15 patients, was reduced from like six a day to zero. Um, so every, every side effect is diminished, and then you get this this more robust response. The cancer cells are dying easier 
and quicker and more in mass because they can't uh, defend themselves. Um, so you get, you know, this beautiful therapeutic differential, and that's just done by diet or fasting. Um, but we're learning, you know, that as far as therapies go, there's a whole range of things that we can use that act metabolically. We're learning about repurposed drugs, you know, old drugs like metformin that are originally prescribed for type 2 diabetes um, have a very robust anti-cancer effect as, as an adjuvant, meaning they set the cells up again and to die easier. Um, oh, uh, well, exogenous ketones. There's a whole list of things. Yeah. This is great. Yeah, I'd like to ask you about all these in brief. So um, fasting, just a quick question about the protocol. What would be ideal? Let's say I'm going to have chemo. I should fast beforehand. Should I fast after the chemo for a certain period of time? Like, you know, again, I know it's different for everybody and it varies and all that, but what's a, uh, a general idea of what, what would be helpful to a chemo treatment to make it a lot more effective or a radiation treatment? Yeah, you know, we don't we don't have a great answer to that. The study that was done, um, you know, the, the guy that did it is Walter Longo at UCLA. He had a hard time convincing mm-hmm. oncologists to per- participate in the study. They didn't want to do it. Um, but he finally convinced a number of them to do it. And I think the patients, you know, it, they fast depending on how um, their ability to fast. Some patients are very, you know, they're sick and they can't do a prolonged fast. So right. that study, it varied from 24 hours to 72 hours. You know, he tried to get them out to do a fast for 72 hours before, but some of the patients could only do 24 to 48. So we don't, right. you know, we don't have like a, a, a like a, a dose response curve to what work, what would work best. Um, I think the answer is just how how well you can tolerate it. Your state of health, if you're feeling good, you know, you could, you could go to 72 hours beforehand. Um, but yeah, well, what no, about no uh, after? Let's say I do I, 24 and then I have it. Should I wait another 24 to eat, or I, I just eat right after and you know it's had the effect? Or what's your guess? Yeah, no, I don't know the answer to that. I think, you know, afterwards, you're trying to set that that sort of differential I talked about up before you get the chemotherapy or the radiation. So I, I guess the answer, you know, we don't know what would the effect would be afterwards. Yeah. I guess it sounds like that study needs to be done. That would be very helpful and shed a lot of light, right? Yeah, yeah. The problem with those kind of studies is money. The The, the biggest problem mm-hmm. is those therapies are free, so no one really, <laughs> there's very little funding to do them. And they literally are because you're not eating, you know, like that. Um, same for exogenous ketones. So, uh, would it be helpful for someone to maybe fast and take exogenous ketones before a therapy like that? You know, the, the, the preclinical data says, yes, there's a good study done by Dominic D'Agostino and Tom Seyfried where they, um, I think it was a glioma model, uh, with mice where they tested mice on a ketogenic diet. And again, when I say when you say ketogenic diet, essentially it's just the nutritional maintenance of the fasting state. So you'd expect to see sort of a similar result. Um, and the, these mice were in, on a ketogenic diet. They measured their overall survival. They at, measured it um, then the ketogenic diet combined with hyperbaric oxygen. And then the third arm of the study was a ketogenic diet combined with hyperbaric oxygen combined with exogenous ketones. And the the ketogen the mouse the mice in the ketogenic diet lived a little longer than the control group. The mice with the ketogenic okay. diet with HBOT lived a little longer, even more little, little longer than the ketogenic diet mice. And then the third arm, when they added in the exogenous ketones, those mice lived the longest. So that we have that evidence. We have the evidence that um, you know when you just do a simple petri dish experiment and you add ketones and you keep glucose levels the same and you add ketones in, cancer cells seem to sputter and, and have trouble, um, even 
even uh, just adding those in. And there's other reasons for that. We think that they probably act um, as a as a drug in themselves beyond just being a fuel replacement. They have the sort of epigenetic acting quality to them that may have an anti-cancer effect by itself. Sure. Okay. And then you talked about um, bringing back old drugs like metformin. Metformin, what, it, it suppresses glucose? Or what does it do and why does it affect people with, uh, with cancer, you think? Well, metformin is a weird drug. So it's, it's originally, it's a natural product isolated from the French lilac plant. It's been around since the 50s. Um, remarkable drug for type 2 diabetes. And, and the interesting thing about drugs like that, they're so, when they get so well prescribed, I think it's the second most widely prescribed drug in the world right now, is you get this huge experimental block of data. You have people on this drug, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people on this drug for decades. And so you can follow them. It's, a, you know, an epidemiological dream scenario. And when you follow people on metformin, you get this weird scenario starts to emerge where people with type 2 diabetes become it looks like even more protected from cancer than the general population. So then you circle back and ask, why is this drug doing this? It's conferring some sort of, you know, preventative effect for cancer than even people, than pe healthy people not not on metformin. And it, it just does a lot of strange things. Yeah, it lowers blood glucose. That's one thing. It does that very well. But it also messes with uh, what we call the electron transport chain. It inhibits one of the, the protein complexes, which sounds terrible. But the side effect of that is, is for some reason, some sort of protective quality in the cell. And when you, when you look at cancer, what you realize, we've underappreciated the fact that they're really vulnerable to oxidative stress. And that's why, like we talked about the ketogenic diet, reducing their amount of antioxidants, that appears to be one of the best ways to kill cancer cells is either give them overloads of oxidative stress, and that just means free radicals. We can do that through hyperbaric mm -hmm. oxygen. It's a very gentle way to do it. Or we can reduce their ability to make antioxidants. But metformin seems to mess with the, um, the electron transport chain in a way that uh, causes them to have just an intolerable amount of free radicals and they just die, you know, die sooner or die easier. Mm. So that's one of the mechanisms of action. And again, in healthy cells, it appears to be what we call a hermetic response. And that's when you stress cells just the right way. You know, this is kind of why fasting works. When you provide a biological stressor in the right way, you get a, a, a sort of a healthy response. So, that, yeah, that's, that's no, no one really knows how metformin works. There's, that's still being debated. So um, have you seen people that, uh, you know, have had cancer that have tried, you know, the whole gamut? They're taking metformin. They're doing hyperbaric oxygen. They're taking exogenous ketones. They're fasting. They're, you know, they're doing everything. Yeah. Is there any yeah. creatures out there, people that have done that? What's happened? Yeah. Yeah. We're starting to see more and more people do that. You know, these are all kind of N of one stuff, but um, right. yeah, we, we, I'm involved with an organization called Care Oncology and they, they got started in the UK and they prescribed this combination of repurposed drugs um, as an adjuvant therapy while they're running a clinical trial. And we've helped bring this over to the U S. And so we see patients, um, you know, that are, that are, doing all sorts of combinations of therapies, ketogenic diets, you know, the care oncology protocol and things like that. And, um, you know, statistical data is no, obviously what you have to rely on, but we, we are seeing patients that are, you know, defying odds with very, very serious terminal, you know, terminal cancers that are far out. So it's too early to say, but yeah, you're on the exact right track. If we're ever going to beat this disease, it's going to be through a, you know, a combination 
many different therapies, different dosage, different timing, um, but it's going to be through that sort of approach. Hmm. Okay. So what, what right now are you, you know, today, what are you working on? What are you researching and what do you hope the results will be in the near future? Well, we're doing, you know, what we're doing with care oncology is um, it's just an interesting model because it's a, it's essentially using these repurposed drugs. There's a huge repository of data that gives you the confidence to treat patients off-label. And so that's what they did in the UK was come up with a combination, you know, that, that synergistically these drugs work together. And the data clearly shows that, that in combination, they're much more powerful than by themselves. And so you have the evidence to treat patients. These drugs, you know, one of them's metformin. They've been around forever. We know they're everything about them, pharmacokinetics, dynamics, everything, their safety profile. So you can do this very safely. Um, and then you just track outcomes over time. So you can measure the effect as an adjunctive therapy over time. So it's a model where, you know, you're not saying, okay, let's test this in a clinical trial setting. It's let's, let's, there's enough evidence to treat, but then let's also circle back and measure these outcomes. Um, so that, that's what I'm involved with here in the U.S. And it's just, it's a very interesting model. And, you know, we, we, we hope to expand off that. We'll get the data for the, for these four drugs, and then we'll be able to, you know, do a version 2.0, the next, um, you know, combination that we think is going to have the best effect. Are there particular cancers that you want to go after versus others or particular circumstances? Well, we want to go after them all. And, and you know, the data clearly shows that. The metformin, when you look at people, almost every cancer that they've ever looked at with metformin, it's, it's had an effect. And that, not saying every study's shown effect, but when they, sh- then when they do show an effect, it's in a variety of cancers. Um, and then you ask why, and because it, it circles back to this, you're, you're targeting this ubiquitous sort of uh, defect in the cancer cell, this, this metabolic change that is across the... Okay. Um, yeah, from what I've seen, usually the people that work with cancer, they have, um, yeah, I know I'm not going to call their favorites, but ones that they consider to be more serious, so they want to target those particular cancers, or there's certain cancers that have unusual characteristics that they want to target. Um, you know, you mentioned at the very beginning of the interview, which I, I didn't know this, that some cancers genetically, they look the exact same as, as regular cells, and some of them do have altered genes. Pediatric cam- cancers, for example, they have, they have zero mutations, you know. So we don't have to, that's, that's a good thing about these metabolic therapies is we don't have to worry about the mutational profile for the most part. Um, where, you know, as if you're doing a targeted drug, you, that limits you that to the type of cancer and then the type of mutations that are in that cancer in most cases. Um, are there any particular cancers you've seen that are the most susceptible to the type of therapies we've been talking about? You know, the easiest one, the lowest hanging fruit to knock out? Yeah, you know, the, the tougher ones? The brain, well, the glioblastoma is one of the worst types of cancer there is. It's the brain cancer that, that John McCain just, uh, that just took John McCain. It's, it's, it seems to be on the rise. It's the most, one of the most aggressive cancers there is. Um, that one, see, brain cancers in general seem to be very susceptible to these type of therapies because the brain, uh, the neurons are sort of a hybrid where they like to burn glucose if glucose is available, but they can easily switch to, to ketones. So they're, they're, you know, they as far as metabolic therapies go, they seem to be um, very responsive to that. So, and, and that was our first data, the, or UK, that was their first data with um, care oncology was in glioblastoma. Uh, and the, the, it was a 100-patient cohort. And when you add those four drugs to standard of care, you, you see about a doubling in overall survival. Oh, wow. And we'll see, you know, as time goes on, uh, 
you know, ketogenic diets, how, what their what their role as an adjuvant will be with glioblastomas. But it'll be interesting to see when you add that in and a few other things, what that survival curve looks like. So, you know, you said you learn stuff every day, which is really great. What what surprises you about the about cancer and about the therapies? Like maybe it's a particular cancer where you just can't believe it acts that way. Um, you know, again, what are some things that, you know, the normal public or maybe probably mo- most doctors don't even know that you've seen that are just very unusual? Man, that's a tough question. Interesting to you or exciting because it, it shows a, a way to fight cancer that, you know, maybe wasn't seen before. Anything that really piques your interest in what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny because it, these things, you know, are, seem so simple and they're free, um, but they have such a difficult time getting up and running. Uh, I guess the ketogenic diet, you know, it's it's being studied now. There's a study, there's a there's probably a dozen clinical trials across the U.S. Um, but w- what's kind of surprising to me is that how difficult it's been. The, the, the oncologists will sort of draw a line, and of course, this you know this doesn't mean every oncologist. But and I think this comes from just the nature of their job. But they draw a line between standard of care and, and then everything else. And what we, the surprising thing to me is when there's so much literature, so much data um, that there's just that there has to be that delineation between standard of care and nothing else. Doctors, you know, especially with patients like glioblastoma, they just need to take more chances. The patients want it. You know, they, they right. can do the math on a terminal illness. They they can measure risk and reward where oncologists will say, no, I don't, there's no reason to try that. They can, you can ask an oncologist about aspirin, say, no, no, there's a risk of bleeding. Well, I'm, you know, my, my, my median overall survival is 11 or 14 months. I'm not worried about a 2% chance of a minor bleed. So right. that's what surprises me is this is kind of, and, and I think, you know, in defense of oncologists, their job is brutally difficult. And patients come to them with variety of questions all the time. This is probably no excuse, but they just get, I think they just get burned out and they draw that line between standard of care and then, you know, not wanting to try other things in certain cases. But um, I guess that's what surprises me the most is that unwillingness to take risk and, but do it in a responsible way. We can always measure outcomes. You know, we have electronic medical records. Every patient can be a data point. So when we do take risks and try new things, that data can be collected um, we just, you know, we could do so much better in oncology. Hmm. So, um, well, perhaps uh, perhaps doctors are worried about uh, not pro- providing the standard of care because they would get in trouble, right, if they didn't? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's the gun to their head, right? Absolutely. Yep. That's the other part is the legal legal issues. I mean, they they do have to do standard of care, and you know, you're not you're not even in most cases asking them to forego standard of care. What you're just asking is. Um, additional things on top of standard of care that might help, that might make it work better. And, you know, those fall under the the label of, or under what we call off-label use. And, you know, you look around and you'll see academic institutions are more willing to do off-label stuff, especially in very dire cases, than, of course, like a community hospital where they're just not going to try anything else. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it, it, and even going off-label carries risk because if something goes wrong, um, they can be held responsible, you know, but I, I think that's extremely rare. I think, you know, patients, that's what they want. If, if, if they have a very, you know, a very dire prognosis and it's very rare for them, doctors to get in trouble for doing that. Well, uh, you know, I, uh, we can't even call this advice, but, you know, people that are listening, there may be some, unfortunately, that are dealing with cancer. Maybe they have a dire diagnosis. I don't know. 
I know you can't advise them, but what can you say? What what could they do? What should they do to at least get informed? You know, what resources can you talk about? Or, you know, if they have a doctor and they want to try certain things, you know, what's your, I guess, what's your advice for them without advising them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you I guess. I guess to not advise them, I not advise them to get as much information as you possibly can. That's the first step, and, and you know, and then the, then the hard part is well, what what information is good and what isn't. Um, but I I would ask ask your your GP ask you know it doesn't just have to be your oncologist. You can take it to other other MDs or if you have doctor friends or people that are may, maybe more versed you know in healthcare. Um, because there's a lot of there's a lot of simple things out there like like we said there's good evidence that fasting before the chemo is going to help and that's safe and easy you know I don't think anybody's going to um, you're not really going out on a limb there to do that a ketogenic diet that's just you know a different in macro macronutrient ratios um, so just those simple things that are safe those are right there in front of you there's 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 not clinical trial evidence to point to there is a clinical trial to show that ketogenic diet is safe you know a phase 1 trial um but there's a lot of good theory and preclinical work to say you know suggest that it can help uh again repurposed drugs there's a mountain of data about certain drugs and it's it doesn't you know it's not just the care oncology drugs there's about 80 or so uh you know there's about 6000 drugs out there that can be prescribed in the in the whole pharmacopoeia, and you whittle that down to about 80 of those um, have good anti-cancer activity, and we know you know again because they're old drugs we know their safety profile we know when there's adverse events or they they're not you know they contradict with certain chemotherapies you know so that there's that out there and there's there's organizations that are looking at those all the time and there's there's groups you know patient advocacy groups that are comparing notes on those all the time so those are things you can take to your doctor and ask you know if they can potentially help um so those are you know those are very safe things that are right there in front of everybody and they can they can hit the literature and do on their own is there such a thing called a metabolic uh therapy doctor uh, no not yet but I, there will be someday i'm sure of it uh yeah there's, you know, there's, I guess there's just doctors that would, are more interested in it. I know some oncologists that are just interested in that lifestyle. They, they've adopted a ketogenic diet for different reasons, and that kind of got them interested in that, in the metabolism. And then it circled back to, you know, their oncology careers, and they they discovered this whole new realm of metabolic oncology. And they advise their, you know, patients on ketogenic diets and things like that. So, um I think it's just you know a matter of merging those two interests and disciplines over time. That will be a that will be a subcategory eventually. Hmm. Yeah, it's one of the problems I you know I've realized is um, you know if you have cancer, obviously you're very afraid and you know that's preys upon your mind constantly. And you know the doctor tells you one thing, and then if you look and you 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 try to research other stuff. You just don't know if it'll be effective or not, and you're yeah. faced with like a a serious dilemma because your life's at stake. So it makes it really hard to 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 think clearly and to say, well, can I try this and will it affect that? You know, should I keep going to my normal doctor and doing my normal standard of care stuff and try this other stuff or not? You know, I don't want to die. What should I do? That yeah. seems like it's a really really tricky thing. It makes it very difficult it's, for people to know what to do. 
extraordinarily tricky. And I think you're right. When when you have a diagnosis like that, you look at the person in front of you and, and you want them to, you know, you hope that they're going to have all the answers. You don't want it to be that hard. Unfortunately, they're just a human being. And, and what happened with medicine is, you know, medicine used to be easy. There was a handful of therapies that worked back in the 1800s and a doctor was a doctor. We've nurtured this culture of autonomy, of self-sufficiency, we put doctors on the pet, you know, the sort of omniscient pedestal, and and but it, but the the problem is, is medicine has just outstripped the capacity of the human mind to do it effectively. There is too much to know, and and a Mayo Clinic study, a recent Mayo Clinic study, showed that 88% of the time, if you get a second opinion, it'll change the treatment out pathway. So yeah. even within a, one diagnosis, you will get you know con, conflicting opinions. The ver, the variation in healthcare. In our hodgepodge medical system is crazy. You will get, you know, in Davenport, Iowa, you'll get a stent put in. Or if you go to Stanford, you won't. So it just, you have to sort of, uh, um, you know, right away just acknowledge how complex this is and that one person is probably not going to have all the answers. That doesn't mean you don't listen to them. Um, you know, the oncologists, there's very good data for standard of care. But you just you, there's nothing wrong with seeking out second opinions and other advice from other again other professionals. Okay, so uh, just to conclude, what um, what are some resources people can read or find out or look at, you know, to help inform them better about the whole, uh, you know, about cancer in general or about their condition if they have one. Oh, you know, hmm. I well, just you know, if you're really interested in, it, I love Tom Seyfried's book, Cancer is a Metabolic Disease. Um, it's it's really heavy textbook wise. Uh, dietary stuff. I I love the book by Miriam Kamari, um, Keto for Cancer. That's a wonderful book. Um, you know, is is it's really hard to give one summary, but there's there's a lot of stuff cropping up right now as far as uh, metabolic stuff for cancer. So I think you know that if you just if you get savvy with PubMed, um, that can lead you down rabbit holes, and you'll find a ton of information on. On, you'll, find, you'll start to find some certain researchers that are really doing this stuff and kind of, you know, read their their studies. But, yeah, I wish I had a better well, answer for you. Well, how about this guy, uh, Travis Christopherson, that wrote Tripping Over the Truth? <laughs> I didn't want to plug my own book. But, yeah, that's a good place to start, too. <laughs> that's great. Well, Travis, thanks for coming. I, I really appreciate your, your time and your insights. And uh, I don't know if you want uh, to give away for listeners to, to get in touch if they have questions or just your book is good. Yeah, yeah, book is good. Um, that's yeah, I, I would just steer him to the book. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. You bet, Richard. Thank you. Take care. You have been listening to Almost Here Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence. 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.